again, uh, this is, uh, hopefully this, this story allows us to cover quite a bit of ground in the narrative. We're going to try to get the entire chapter done tonight because it's, again, it's one long story. So we probably won't read through the, every verse of it, but uh, it's, we'll, read, we'll read, jump around as we go through it and fill in the blanks as we, uh, as we work our way through it. This is uh, the first signs of a threat uh, to the church. Obviously, the uh, threats and the persecution is, are going to increase. It's going to be a lot more than it was, but this is just that first initial sign of it. And uh, it's still, as I was thinking about it, trying to put myself in this predicament, uh, still greater than anything we've ever seen. As uh, We see that uh, Peter and John have uh, never made it home from the, from the day that they went uh, two weeks ago when we met and we looked in Acts uh, 3. And they healed the man in the temple, and uh, then they they did they did a good deed, and then used that opportunity to do uh, preach and to to tell folks why this man was healed. They never made it home from that prayer meeting. They never made it home from church, and they find themselves in um, a bunch of trouble, basically for doing a good deed. And as I read read through this, and I've never even been in this situation. They they all they faced this time was some verbal threats and a night in jail. I've never never uh, had either one uh, verbal threats because I was preaching about Christ or uh, spent the night in jail uh, for any reason, by the way. Just to make sure I never spent the night in jail for any reason. But uh, there's always that chance, right? So anyways, we're, we're going to look through the, this uh, story here and, and uh, look at how the church responds. Really the meat of where we're going to go or where we want to end up is at the end, uh, the last several verses when we read about how the church responded in verses uh, uh, 20, uh, verse 24 to the end of the passage, but we have to build the case to get the idea of where we're going. So, and uh, we'll read a little bit, verse number one, it says, and as, and as they spake unto the people, this is Peter and John, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold unto the next day, for it was now even high. Albeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of men was about 5,000. So uh, Peter and John have healed this man. They have uh, caused a great commotion in the temple, probably, as I showed you in the picture a couple weeks back, uh, probably on the steps of the temple where 5,000 at least people were there because it says that 5,000 men believed. So if it's not counting the women, then we can assume that women would have believed. And we also want to assume that people heard that didn't believe. Not every You don't usually get 100% success rate. So I'm imagining many, many thousands of people on the steps here, hearing Peter preach, seeing that this man that they've all seen they're all, all their lives uh, for 40 years, this man was a 40-year-old uh, crippled man who had instantly been healed, and now Peter is giving glory to Christ and giving credit to Jesus for doing that. He preaches a message more powerful than the message of Pentecost because we see more people coming to Christ. The results are, are uh, uh, greater because of that. Uh, up to this point, the church has grown in large jumps. They've grown from uh, 120 to 3,120 to now 8,120, and they just begin they continue to grow. I don't... Uh, the, the scripture doesn't continue to record how big the church gets, because, and partly because they scatter, and 
the church becomes the you know local churches all throughout the world because of what we start to see here this idea of persecution as i read through this story and as we continue on to the book of acts uh, i really want to get an idea of why is this in here because i don't want persecution honestly i don't think any of us do i don't think we want to suffer persecution we don't want uh, to have to do secret church we don't want to have to make a choice between laying down our life or uh, standing up for christ although I think uh, heroically we all would say, oh yeah, I'll do that. But I, I don't want to have to prove it. I'd just rather you know, be, live it comfortably, live, live the American dream, and be sold out for Christ. But uh, for, at least for these people, that was not the case. So uh, we see some groups of people that were mentioned here. There was the captain of the temple, and he would have been the, the second in command, if you will, of the, of the temple. He was uh, second only to the high priest, uh, the high priest is mentioned later on in uh, in the chapter. He was part of the council that would meet with them down in verse number. Uh, I can't see now. I can't see the words. Verse number seven. Verse number six. There it is. Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas. The actual high priest here was Caiaphas, but Annas was the the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Chia- of Caiaphas. He had been the former high priest, and kind of like how. Our presidents retain their title even after they're no longer the official president. Uh, that would be that's Annas, but also uh, it showed that he, in, in history, tells us that he had a lot of power and influence uh, over over the Sanhedrin. We'll talk about the Sanhedrin in just a moment. It talks about another group of people here called the Sadducees. You see them pop up a lot. Jesus had a big problem with Pharisees and with Sadducees. Excuse me. Uh, he had a lot of issues with the uh, Sadducees, and the said, let me just give you a little bit of background on them. Sadducees were the majority of what we call the Sanhedrin. The, this would have been the council of 71 uh, elders, uh, 70 elders plus the one high priest, and uh, that's the people uh, in front of, uh, that, that's the people that Peter and John are standing in front of about to plead their case and really actually going to point their fingers at them. But uh, the, most of the Sanhedrin were Sadducees, and the, they were wealthy aristocrats. They had uh, they had a big investment in how things went uh, politically and economically. They were um, they were very interested in keeping the peace because they were going to be affected by that financially. If uh, if we go all the way back, the same reason that Jesus was crucified was because Pilate was willing to let Jesus go, but because he feared that the crowd would turn into a mob and riot. Uh, he let them have what they wanted to keep the peace because word would get back to Caesar and all that. Well, that's what the Sadducees are kind of doing here, uh, wanting to do something more, but because of the people. We'll see, we'll get, I'm jumping ahead of my story a little bit. Uh, religiously, they, were, uh, they believed that uh, only the first five books, the, the books of the law, were legitimate. They didn't really accept anything else, so they looked at Moses' law, and that's it. Uh, they didn't believe, and this is an important thing, they didn't believe that anybody but priests should teach the people, and they didn't believe in the resurrection. They denied the resurrection, so that meant that they denied Jesus is alive. They denied that anybody would be resurrected. Uh, the death is the end. So if we understand those two things right there about what the Sadducees believed as far as priests should only teach and that, that there is no resurrection, when we read that verse, uh, those, those verses again, we get an idea of why they're stirred up. Because it says back in verse number 2, it says that they were grieved that they taught the people. 
because they weren't priests. They were fishermen. These were uneducated. They were uh, un, um, unofficial. They were speaking unofficially uh, in their mind, and they didn't have the right to do that. But also it says that they preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So they preached the resurrection, which they categorically denied, but then they also uh, objected to the fact that they they credited the resurrection to someone who had already died. And so since they believe there's no resurrection, then the one to whom you give credit can't be responsible because he's dead as well if you, if you don't believe in the resurrection. Well, all of these things happen, and they begin to, uh, they begin to you know, scheme and figure out how we're going to, uh, how we're going to uh, figure all this out. So they arrest them uh, because it was eventide. They were going to stand before the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin only met in the mornings, and so instead of letting them go and ask them to come back in the morning, they said, let's just arrest you, and then uh, we will keep you in prison, and then we can have you when we want. We've already seen through the way that they treated Jesus that these, these people did whatever they want, and so that's what, that's what they're doing with Peter and John. And so in this story, it kind of caps off the last story in verse number four by telling, even though they arrested them and they put an end to the preaching, uh, howbeit... Uh, many, many people uh, believed on Christ that day. So then on the morning, in verse number 5, it's in the next morning, they pull these two men out of jail and they stand before what is called the Sanhedrin. In verse number 5, it says, It came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. So not only is it the Sanhedrin, but it's actually members of this priestly family uh, we know a little bit about Annas. We know a little bit about Caiaphas. Uh, John uh, here was Caiaphas' son, and then we don't really know anything about who Alexander was, but probably someone of importance. And all of these people are sitting around. Imagine being uh, in front of a court of 70 people, uh, in, and, and 70 people who are ready to not listen to you, but ready just to, to judge you and write you off. And so then they, they jump into it. And it said in verse number 7, and when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? They, they're asking Peter and John, under whose authority you've done this deed. Remember, it's going all the way back to, you're in trouble because you helped a lame man walk. That's the, big, that's, that's the crime that you committed was you did good. And so they're asking by whose authority or under, under whose power. Now they couldn't doubt the fact that the miracle had actually happened. They couldn't cast a shadow on that. So what they're doing is they're bringing up into question how you did this or why you did this, under whose authority. And so, uh, and what we see here is that the man, the, the healed man, was standing with them during this time. Later on it says he was standing there. I don't know if he went to jail with them or if he came back the next morning. He's like, I'm going to be a witness for you guys. But he definitely, uh, he definitely helped the situation out. So in verses 8 through 12, we see Peter's response. And it's very, uh, it's very uh, pointed. It's very... Bold and bold is, is a kind of the key word throughout this passage, uh, but we see Peter's response. Now, this is the same Peter who only a short time ago uh, couldn't stand before a young maiden and and asso- associate himself with Christ. This is the same Peter who had to curse and swear to throw people off the track uh, because he wanted he he but you know before the the cock crows twice will deny me thrice. That's the same Peter. It's not been too long ago, but now he's standing in front of people who are ready to accuse him of being a Christian, of being a Jesus follower, and he has a completely different attitude uh, 
because I think it's because of the power of the Holy Spirit. It says in verse number 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel. And this is, I think, I think Peter is, is, is being, I see the sarcasm coming out. Uh, he's very ironic in how he says, If we this day be examined of the good deed done to the infant, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all, and to all the people of Israel, by the, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. So I was reading through this the first time, and I just, as I read through it, I, I just write questions out, and usually I don't even find the answers to them. I just I throw all my thoughts on a piece of paper. And one of the things I thought was, why else would they be standing here? And Peter's saying, well, okay, well, if, you're, if we've been brought here because we healed this crippled man, let me tell you that it's because of Jesus. And, and and I think Peter must have been like, why else do you think we're here? But he's using this he's using this opportunity once again to preach Christ, even though um, uh, even though this would have been a very scary situation. Now we've seen a couple of times later on in the in the book of Acts and throughout uh, throughout some of the uh, other stories when people were in prison for preaching the gospel, God would send an angel, God would send an earthquake, and free them. Even Peter himself would be freed from prison, but not this time. Why? Because I think Jesus wanted him to stand before this council and point the finger at them one more time and say, uh, "You did this. To you did this to God Himself, and that you are to blame." And so, uh, number so he does three things in this in his response. In verse number nine, he points out that they were on trial for doing good; that they had broken no laws. He's saying, "Listen, you are accusing us, and you are trying to punish us for something that is is completely good. It would be." the police pulling you over because you're picking up litter and giving you a ticket. You know, and, and, and you've got to go to, you got to go to court. You've got to stand before the judge. Well, why are you here? I was picking up trash on the side of the road. It wasn't even mine. It was just, I was trying to do a good thing. I, I pulled someone out of the ditch. Well, you were, you were illegally parked while you were trying to pull someone out of the ditch. And that, that's what they're trying to do. And so Peter's, he's, he's trying to bring up the fact that I'm here as an innocent man. You are, and what he's going to do is he's going to turn the tables and, and, and instead of be on the defense, he's going to put them on the defense because he said in the next verse, in verse number 10, he places the guilt back on the priests and the elders. And he turns this from, we're not really here because we did a good deed. We're here because you rejected Christ. So he says in verse number 10, be it known unto, unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucify, he won't let them get away from that. That's that's one of those issues that you know. Sometimes when you're talking to someone, uh, maybe husbands, and and she won't let it go, you know, and you're like, come on, I already said I'm sorry for that. I already I thought we could get past this, but bringing it up again, that's Peter. Uh, he's like, oh, by the way, he's the one you crucified. In case you forgot who I'm talking about, Jesus, the one you hung on a tree, the one who said, Father, forgive them. Uh, yeah, that's the one I'm talking about here. He's the one who healed this man. He says, whom he crucified, whom God raised from the dead. So again, here, this is a barb to the Sadducees. They're saying, we don't believe in the resurrection. He's going, actually, he's still alive. Even though you crucified him, you couldn't stop him. He's still alive. Even by him that this man stand here before you hold. This, Jesus, is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corners. He's going back a little bit to uh, some things that Jesus had said as far as... Um, uh, the, the, the stone as the builders would be building, saying, ah, we don't want that one. That one's, that one's uh, we, we, we disregard this one, but that's actually the most important stone. That's the cornerstone, the, the foundation of the building. And they're saying Jesus was the most important part of everything that we're doing here, and that's the one piece you decided not to have. 
And it's like saying, you're going to make chocolate chip cookies, but you're not going to have chocolate chips. I don't know why you would make cookies unless you're going to put chocolate chips in. I mean, just oatmeal? Who wants to eat just that? And even worse than that, reasons in there because they're like fake chocolate chips. Okay, I'm preaching here right now, and I want you to pay attention here, okay? Uh, because uh, it's important that we get our Bibles straight, okay? So uh, th- this is this is what uh, Peter is trying to do. He's trying to point back to the fact that, hey, we're not I, we're not on trial here. Actually, I'm going to turn the tables on you, and it's going to be all about what you did with Christ. And then in verses 11 and 12, uh, he put, preaches salvation through Jesus alone. He uses this opportunity uh, that uh, really is, a, in a way, once in a lifetime, but for Peter it would prove to be a couple of times in a lifetime uh, to be able to stand before. Imagine being brought before the U.S. Supreme Court, because that's really what he's doing. He's standing before the highest law of this land and giving an account of his, of his actions. And imagine if you got trucked into the U.S. Supreme Court, you're standing before them, and, and maybe let's just throw in the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate just to kind of add to the doom and the gloom. And they're, and they're bringing you up on unpatriotic charges, and really all you were doing was picking up litter. And then you, instead of cowering and making a defense for yourself, you turn it around and you say, no, you guys are at fault here. And having the boldness to stand and do that, well, Peter says, I'm not just going to, I'm not just going to cower to you. I'm also going to preach to you right now and make sure that you understand uh, why I've been doing what I'm doing. This is the stone which is set at not of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now, verse 13, when they saw the boldness of Peter, there's that word again, we'll see it a couple times later. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men. They marveled, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man, here's that man. I told you he was, he was there, either spent the night with him in jail, or he came back to help him out. Beholding the man, which was healed, standing with them, he could say nothing against them. He's got them speechless. He got that last word. I always wanted to be that guy that got the last word. You know, like, I can say something, and then you can't think of anything to come back. If you're like me, most of the time, after it's all over and you're driving home, you're like, oh, I should have said that. You know, you want to call them back up so you can say that one more thing, but then they usually have something better. Peter, he got the last word, and they couldn't refute anything he was saying. Why? Because the man was standing right there whole. Like, if you deny the power that we have, look to my, look to my right. There he is. He's right here. Obviously, the power that we have works. And so they couldn't really deny the power because of these things. So, uh, what, but what we see in verse number 13 is that the Sanhedrin recognized Peter and John. John's getting a lot of credit, and he's not said anything yet. I don't know why what he's going on, but John's getting a lot of credit for his bravery, and yet he's just like standing there like, Peter, if you let me get a word in, uh, I could help. But uh, John's getting a lot of good uh, good points here, standing for Jesus, even though he hasn't done anything. Uh, but uh, they recognize that uh, their, their lack of formal training. When it says there that they were unlearned and ignorant men, it doesn't mean that they were stupid doesn't mean that they were idiots, but rather that they were untrained. They had no formal training like the priests, like the Sadducees. They weren't from the big-name schools. They didn't have pedigrees and, and, and letters after their name, and they didn't, have, um, they didn't have the same background that these learned men did. They were two fishermen, and it showed. It showed in the way that they dressed. It showed in the way that they carried themselves. Uh, when you go to big cities, you, know, you can kind of point out like, 
that person doesn't belong right there. You know, maybe you feel like that sometime when you're like, I'm a country person and I'm out in the middle of a big city or when a big city person comes to town and you're like, that person doesn't belong here. Uh, they've got uh, they've got two cleanest shoes or that that, uh, that that just that outfit that wardrobe doesn't go with this setting. That's how much they stuck out in uh, in the same uh, compared to the Sanhedrin because um, they were unlearned and ignorant, or rather, they were uneducated. But it says that though formally untrained, their time with Jesus had prepared them to speak up for him. It says there that it says uh, that they beheld that they were ignorant, unlearned, and ignorant men. They marveled. And they took knowledge of the fact that they had been with Jesus. This is all that they needed. And really, they had been with Jesus for three years. And really, if we look at their three-year stint as following Jesus, we don't see a lot of successes. We see the disciples messing up and not getting it and not getting it. Some of you teach. You know what I'm talking about when you're trying to teach someone and they don't get it and they don't get it and they don't get it. And then they ace the test and like, what? I wasn't expecting that. But that's exactly what's going on here. Peter failed and failed and failed and failed, but when it was time, when it really mattered, he got it so much that other people said, wow, he really has been with Jesus. He really knows what he's talking about. The same way that when Jesus would stand and the Bible says he'd speak with the same authority that, that the scribes and the Pharisees didn't even have, the people who uh, uh, vocationally studied the law, Jesus could stand up and out-teach them. He could out uh, think them, he could outspeak them, and they're like, "Whoa, how, how does he get this stuff? Now Peter and John are starting to act that way, and the Sanhedrin, these 71 men who are supposed to be the smartest and the, and the, the biggest and the brightest, they're going, wow, man, these guys are, these guys are good, and, and we can't say anything to what, we can't, there's no loopholes in what they're saying, there's no flaws in what he's teaching, and especially, the proof is in the pudding, it's right there, this man has been healed. And so, uh, they they uh, they realized that they had been with Jesus. They realized that also, and they're kind of at, at the point where they have to admit that the men have broken the laws, and they cannot be punished. It says there in verse number um, verse number uh, fifteen, uh, they don't know what else to do, so they command them to go out, uh, go aside out of the council, and they conferred among themselves. Okay, well, now what do we do? What do we do now? We can't punish these guys. They didn't break a law. Um, they really did a good thing. Um, his argument was, you know, rock solid, no leaks in that. So it says, what do we do to these men? Uh, for that indeed a notable miracle had been done by them is manifest to all that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it, because everybody saw it. We can't brush this under the rug. We can't uh, pretend it didn't happen. Not only did we see this, 5,000 people saw it in the temple to, uh, yesterday, and they're spreading the news. And you know by this time, more than the people that originally saw it have heard about this. And many people uh, many people are spreading the word. So what they do in verse 17 to just stop the, the bleeding, if you will, to prevent it from spreading any further, let's straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them and they did exactly that. They commanded them to not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Let's just stop. Think about it. What Peter and John did was not walk into the temple and preach. They walked into the temple and they healed a man. They did a good deed that gave them an opportunity to teach the truth. What these guys are saying is, we don't, we're willing to miss out on the good deeds that you can do simply because we don't want to hear your message. It's really uncaring for these people who are supposed to be the leaders of the community saying, 
We don't want you to heal anybody else. Because when you heal people, you give the credit to Jesus. We don't want you to uh, make blind people see again. We don't want you to make lame people walk again. We don't want you to do any of these so-called miracles, even though they're helpful, because you keep giving the credit in the place we don't want it to be. It really is just an, an incredible their, their, their reasoning and their thought process there, that logic. So they threaten, Pe- they threaten Peter and John, and, uh, they, and, they, and they basically they, they, uh, try to scare them into falling in line. Verse 19, again, we see this boldness. Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. They're like, huh, leave that up to you. Because Peter says, Whether you think that we should obey you instead of God, that's up for you to decide. But notice what he says. But we cannot but speak the things which we've seen and heard. We can't help but say the things that we saw. That's what a witness is. He says we can't help but witness. We can't help but testify the things that we've seen. If you think that it's okay to, dis- to, to disregard God's command and, and to obey man, that's, that's up to you. But for us, kind of like Joshua, it's for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. He's saying, we can't do that, okay? We can't but speak the things that we've seen here. So these guys have nothing else to do, so they just threaten them some more, verse 21, and uh, then it says, let them go, finding nothing, how they might punish them, because, notice, because of the people. They, they operated out of the fear of man. When they came in, they had all the fear and the momentum behind them, and they leave going, we can't do anything that we wanted to do because the people will riot. And again, they operated based on the masses, what's popular and what's what's unpopular, and that's how they're, that's how they're going. So it says in verse 23, being let go, they went to their own company, reported that all the chiefs, priests, and elders would send them to them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord, this is the church, and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea, and all that in them is. Who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage, and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up. They're, he's quoting from Psalm, they're quoting from Psalms here. The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth, against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together, for to do whatsoever, notice, thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. We'll dig into this in just a moment. Now, Lord, behold their threatenings. Grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word, by stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. And it says, The multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul, neither said any of them that ought of the things which is just. We're going to get into another passage here. We get into the the uh, selfless acts that they begin to do. But let's 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 look at this uh, this response by the church here. Peter and John have just come back, um, and they tell the church, "You will not believe what happened. We went to prayer meeting. We didn't make it home last night. We actually spent the night in jail. We healed this guy. Five thousand people got saved. Uh, then we went to jail, and then we stood before the council. And they thought they were going to scare us, and they tried to. They threatened us. They said, "Don't ever do this again.'" But we told them, hey, we can't. We, we can only do what God tells us to do. And they threatened us some more, and they said, you better not or else. But they, you know, they couldn't, what are they going to do to us? And later on, we find out what they really will do to them. They'll, they'll, they'll sick a man named Saul on them, and uh, they'll, they'll persecute them. But up to this point, it's just some threats. And so the church then turns to God. Immediately they pray. We go back to verse number uh, 24, when they heard, when they, the church, heard, they lifted up their voice to God. That was their initial, that was their immediate response. 
Let's pray. And notice their prayer. The f- most of it, at least the first half of it, has nothing to do with God ask, asking God for anything. It's all about thanks. It's all about worship. It's all about praise. Let's look at it a little bit more, more closely. Uh, it says there, uh, they lifted up their voice and said, Lord, Thou art God. You made heaven and earth, the sea and all that it is. You spoke by the mouth of David, your servant. And they quote here from, I think it's Psalm number 2, uh, the Kings. He goes from verse 25 and 26, uh, quoting from Psalms. And then he says, For of a truth, against, and uh, we see all these weird phrases, and so if we can kind of remove them, we get the main idea of what they're trying to say. Of a truth, against thy holy child Jesus, both Herod and Pilate, and the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. All these people. And now they're lumping the Jews in with the Gentiles. Pilate is the, is the Gentile. And they're lumping them in with Herod and Pilate. Gentiles, all the non-believers. And now all of Israel. All these people. They gather together to conspire against Jesus. But notice, to do what your hand and your counsel decided to do. What you had already determined long before they were born, long before the worlds began. You had a plan. And they tried to, they were pawns in your plan, God. We see that that though they did some horrible things, it was done by your design and by your plan. And so then this is their prayer. Lord, behold their threats. Look at what they're doing and then do this. Grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. Give your servants boldness to continue speaking the word. And, it says, by stretching forth thine hand to heal, that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child. So here's the church's response. Uh, we see that they realize that they're in a spiritual battle. Uh, Ephesians tells us we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Let's put this in our day and age. If the Chautauqua County or the state of New York or the federal government of the United States came down and said, uh, did the same thing to us and to Christians that they did here, uh, most of us would get on our knees and, and, and ask God to judge America, to, to, to punish those people, to get those people out of office, to uh, give us the freedoms back that we need. And here they don't pray that. They say, here's some opposition. God, give us the boldness and the courage to go against the opposition. To do what, To continue to do what you told us to do. That's what we pray for. We don't pray for our circumstances to change. We don't pray for things to get easier. We don't pray for our enemies to be destroyed. We pray that you would help us to just stay faithful in doing what you asked us to do, what you commanded us to do. That's their prayer. Uh, they worship God. They acknowledge themselves as His servants. It says back up there in uh, verse number uh, verse number 24, saying, you're Lord. You're the Lord. We're your servants. And, and it says that they, and, and they acknowledge that not only are they His servants, but they acknowledge what God has done and what God is doing. God, we see You're doing something here. We're thankful to be a part of it. Help us to be faithful in what you're doing. Notice, notice, and I, I kind of said this already, but a little bit. But look at the the issue that they're that they're praying against: the opposition to preaching the gospel. And so their prayer was again not against the opposition, but rather for boldness to continue doing the work. Um, and and even what they're saying here is, God, we don't want to just do good. That's what that verse number thirty. We we want healings. We want miracles. By stretching forth thine hand to heal, and signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. But that's not the only thing. We want to continue doing good things, God. But we want also that 
that those good deeds would help spread your message. Help us to use that. If you use us, basically boil it down to two things. God, um, work through us and help us to speak boldly for you. That's what we, that's what they're asking. God, do work through us. Continue. We're not backing down. Work through us and help us to speak boldly for you and help us to be faithful no matter what the outcome. So let's look at a couple of takeaways. There's four of them here and I put some additional questions just for maybe some discussion later on if you want to uh, sit down and think about it later on. But let's look at these four things, uh, four takeaways that we get from this. Number one, like Peter and John, with or without persecution, we are called to be witnesses. Peter and John were not the only recipients of Acts 1a. Ye shall be witnesses that was given to the entire church uh, of which we are a part of. And so uh, they, he did not call us to be experts. He did not call us to be like the council, like the Sanhedrin, to be these highly trained theological uh, uh, powerhouses. He said, I just want you to say what you saw. I want That means you've got to see something. That means you have to have experienced something but I want you to simply tell what you what you know. Just say what you've seen and heard. Say what you see. Uh, and when you see Jesus work, be willing to speak up. When something happens, hey, we healed this man. Well, let me tell you, it wasn't by my powers, by Jesus. Uh, well, you know, uh, all these people are gathered together and they're watching all these these uh, these these people speaking in foreign languages. They're like, well, let me tell you why that's happening. It's it's not just happening to wow you and entertain you. It's because uh, Jesus is doing something in the midst. And so they're saying he's what we're trying. What we need to learn here is that we're called to uh, we don't we're not called to go out and do the miracles. We're called to, as we see God work, be willing to speak up and say, hey, let me tell you what Jesus did for us. Uh, this is this is what's happened in my life. This is what I've seen happen uh, through other people's lives. I see simply say what you see. Number two, our ultimate and primary authority is God. So when we get into passages like this, we talk about uh, the Christians uh, loyalties and allegiances to human authorities um, our ultimate and primary authority is to God human and earthly authorities should be obeyed within the context of our obedience to God uh, we, Romans chapter 13 very very clear the entire chapter uh, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers because those higher powers are ordained of God and so if we are in disobedience to our human government um, we are in disobedience to God and think about, you know, over the, the leaders that we've had in this country from, I think, what well, we've had 45 presidents now or something like that. Um, the None of them have been as bad as what they were dealing with during that time. None of the, none of the, the, the worst whoever, if you want to quantify, whoever the worst U.S. president or the worst congressman or the worst senator uh, still didn't stake Christians up and, and burn them to light their garden at New York. You know, they didn't, they didn't uh, allow p uh, the police to come and shoot us down simply because of our faith. So uh, it, there's a there's a there's a line though. We're supposed to always follow God. If the human authority ever crosses that line and says you are commanded to do something different than what God said to do, or you are commanded to do contrary, or you know, that's when the human authority has sidestepped and gotten out of line. It's like in the military. There's a chain of command, and there's the lowly private at the bottom. And then there's the general at the top, and there's the majors and the sergeants and all these people in between. Well, the private's supposed to obey every single one of them, but ultimately, he's obeying the top. And if his sergeant goes out of line and asks him to do something, commands him to do something that is not in line with what the chain of command is, he's no longer obligated to obey him. Because ultimately, he's supposed to be obeying his captain, his general. 
and that's what and our crap our captain is Christ, and so uh, we are obligated to obey. I put some other verses in there uh, to to look at that with number well number two and number three there. Number three because it goes along with this. When faced with threats of persecution, the ch- the Christian should operate out of fear of God, not out of a fear of man. Sanhedrin acted out of the fear of man. Look at these verses. Psalm 118. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. I command you. Jesus said, uh, fear not them which kill the body. I, I, I have a tough time with that one. Okay, I do fear. You, know, you come at me with a gun or a knife. I'll fear you. Okay, I'm afraid. And, uh, and if someone said, I'm not afraid because I'm a Christian. You're a weird one, at least, you know. But, uh, but, but Jesus is saying, don't, don't be afraid. All they can do is kill you. <laughs> well, that's a pretty big one, Jesus. But he's saying, rather fear him who is able to kill you, uh, fear your soul. Fear the one that can do far greater damage to you, the one who can destroy both your body and, uh, and your soul in hell. Uh, uh, Hebrews tells us, uh, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do. And then again, in Ecclesiastes, as Solomon wraps up all of his wisdom, uh, he says, let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God. Keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. And Jesus said, when they tried to trap Him with this idea of civil disobedience, He said, oh, what should we do? Should we pay taxes to Caesar? He's, he's wicked. He's awful. And Jesus said, well, whose inscription's on it? Whose, whose face is on it? Of course, it's Caesar's. Give Caesar that which is his. Pay your taxes. He told, uh, he, he told Peter one time and Someone asked him, if you, do, you, "Do you pay taxes?" He's like, "Yeah, I do." Peter, go down there and find some find some fish, and there'll be some gold in there. And we'll pay our taxes. He wasn't against hiding it. Well, I don't have to obey man; I only obey God. Well, the God that you supposedly obey tells you to obey man. But if that man ever says, "Don't obey God; obey me instead," we do have an obligation to our God. Number four and the last one: prayer is still the best response to the question, "What do I do?" When we're not sure what to do, think about Peter and John in this situation. What do we do? We were just told by the people that killed our leader. We were just told by some people who are not afraid to do illegal, dirty, underhanded things to get their way. We were told by these people to stop. What do we do? And the church says, let's pray. Let's pray about it. Let's, let's, not, let's not get all scared yet. Let's not run away. Let's not hide. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. And let's, and let's ask God, what do we do? And again, and I mentioned this a couple of Wednesdays ago, learning to pray effectively. Uh, when we do pray, uh, how we pray, I really do think matters. Praying the right way, asking for the right things. Again, they didn't pray and say, God, would you please destroy the council? Would you please raise up better leaders than what we have? They said, that's happening, and we see that you're working. Help us to be faithful. Help us to do the thing we're supposed to do, no matter we're going to see the persecution is going to ramp up. We're going to see the church is going to scatter. That's how they're going to fulfill the Great Commission. Uh, I've talked to a couple of you over, over, over the weeks, and uh, it's interesting to draw the parallels between the rapid growth and the spread of the gospel with the persecution of the church. We want one, but we don't want the other, and how closely related they are, how vital one might be to the other. Um, you know, if, if it came down to us and said, okay, the church is going to be persecuted if the gospel is going to spread any further, uh, I wonder how many Christians say, okay, let's go ahead. Strap your boots on, strap your helmet on, let's go for it. Uh, because at all costs, preach the gospel. At all costs, tell people about Christ. Most, I think most, especially in America, would say, yeah, I like our nice building. I like our tax-free status. I like my, my uh, freedoms that I enjoy right now. I think I'll just take it easy. Now, 
we do have an obligation to obey our human authorities. And there are, I think, a lot of times, and I was even put myself in that situation, if I had been Peter and I walked out of there and I thought, should I have done something differently? Was there a way that I should have maybe done that? You know, if they say, hey, it's illegal to uh, do this. Well, is there a way we can abide by that law and do what God wants us to do? Or is it, if, if, and, if, and if I and I can work both of those, then I'm, I'm commanded to do that. But if it comes down to there's no way I can obey that human authority and my Heavenly Father's authority, I have to choose my Heavenly Father. Uh, Christians are supposed to be the most obedient citizens there are, Jesus taught. And so it's very important that we set that example for them, but there's definitely a time when the line has been crossed. Fortunately, and thank God, it's never been like it was in the book of Acts for us. Could be. Never know one day. I don't want to be a doom and gloom person. I really hate it when people do that. But uh, never know what happens in this world. But uh, if, and if, it, if, if it ever did, there's no one person. Let's pray tonight, and we will dismiss.